Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my secret safe house in Adlington, Chorley, in the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my cache of equipment and the great library of RPGs and a selection of eyes-only grognard files. Here on my left is the focus of my solace when things get tough. It's my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a a double tap. Whoa! It's got stuck between two manifestations. Naomi, the wet worker in a swimming costume from The Spy Who Loved Me, and Laura Bellows, a vampiric assign drained of blood in Dracula 1972 AD. It can only mean one thing. It's Night's Black Agents. A Vampire Spy Thriller by Kenneth Height. Before that, we've had another review on that fruity iTunes. We're always very grateful for feedback more than anything else. And this is from Cursed Monkey Hand. Tea, biscuits and games. Listening to this podcast is the RPG equivalent of an Ovis advert. Nostalgic and strangely comforting although without the bikes and the steep hills. Thanks for that. Night's Black Agents. I know what you're thinking. Isn't that one of those new games? Has the nostalgic grognard files finally sold out to the hot newness? Well, see you in court. This was the first game I bought after the deep freeze. That wasn't a retrofit as something that I played back in the day. Night's Black Agents is a spy thriller emulator built on the gumshoe engine created by Robin Laws. It's a lightweight investigation system that creates a forward momentum for scenarios instead of seeking information like treasure in an old school dungeon crawl. In gumshoe, you always get the clue. You just need to make sense of it. UK publisher Pelgrane Press have produced a number of settings for the system, including the Esoterrorists, a world of conflicting global conspiracies, Fear Itself, a more straightforward horror setting, Mutant City Blues, investigation in the world of supers, Ashen Stars, a space opera, and there's much, much more. But it's probably Ken Hikes' Trail of Cthulhu and the fantastic supporting products that have popularised Gumshoe. Stick a shoggoth in it and everyone's happy. If you go back to episode 4, when we went to Dragon Meat in 2015, you'll hear the moment when I purchased some of my blood from Ken Hite himself. I was confused at first because I assumed that the Dracula dossier was a standalone game, 
rather than a campaign pack for Knight's Black Agents. I was intrigued by the idea of Bram Stoker's novel being recast as a after-action report for generations of MI6 operatives who were attempting to employ Dracula as an espionage asset. Fighting Dracula. That's cool, isn't it? I'm really pleased that we have Gareth Ryder Hanran as a guest in this episode, as he was the joint author of the Dracula dossier. He talks about his formative role-playing years in Cork, the convention scene in Ireland, and his role in reviving some of the 80s classics for Mongoose, as well as sharing some of his thoughts on Knight's Black Agents. He offers some tips for my convention game, Operation Groundworm, set against the backdrop of the 1984-85 UK miner strike. The scenario provides a hint of a more sinister explanation for the government's programme of closing profitable mines. It's a session that I've run a few times now, and I have an edited extract from the version from Virtual Grogmeet, the online meetup that happened in April for patrons. We tried to emulate the British TV series The Professionals, Ken Loach's Hidden Agenda and the film Brassed Off, as if it was directed by Quentin Tarantino. If you can imagine such a thing. I should warn you that there's a gratuitous clip of Mrs Thatch and the casual use of 80s hashtag problematic idiom not suitable for minors. I'll never tire of that joke. Later, I'm joined by Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, who's ready to sink his teeth into the finer points of spending points. This is the last sequence of grog pods about spies and espionage. We've covered top secret, mercenary spies and private eyes, and the James Bond RPG. Diligent listeners will know that I promised to have a poll to choose a film clip that we would replicate using a rule set of your choice. As time's gone on, I've become a bit lost in the detail of it, and it appears much more complicated than it really is. I suppose that's a theme of this episode. I'm sure I'll work it out. I'm sure. Uh, Well, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box the section of the podcast where we look back to look forward, how our past has shaped our gaming. Joining us all the way from Cork, Ireland, is our very special guest, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. He's an author, games designer, adventure engineer extraordinaire, writer of such classics as Eyes of the Stone Thief for 13th Age, and of course, the Dracula Dossier for Knight's Black Agents. He's the man that Robin D. Laws, Ken Hyde, turned to. This is a project for Gar. Hello there, Gareth. Hello. So how, how does it feel to be a, a troubleshooter? I'm not sure if troubleshooter is the right word. More sort of like, you know, I don't know, under, understudy, second stringer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, joining us at, at the Grognard Files. No, no. How, how, we, how we start all of these uh, interviews is, how did you get into the hobby? 
and what did you start playing with? Many, many years ago, I was hugely into Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, and I'd never heard of gaming or anything. The local library were running a Tolkien week, and I wandered in at the age of like 11 or so, and there were all these people around a table doing something, and there were these strange little figures and maps and things. They were, basically, they were running a demo game of some variation of Merp. They said, I want to join in, and I struck my hand up instantly. They handed me a card sheet saying, you are an elf who has passed through Moria. I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Played for like an hour or so. Thought that was the best thing ever. And then spent about two years, because this is pre-internet, trying to find out exactly what I'd played. I found what I thought was the right game, but actually turned out to be this incredibly complicated like 1980s war game and spent months trying to work out how this like complicated war game with like dozens of dice and figures and movement rules could be mapped to the thing I had played in the library where you like you know, said what you wanted to do and did it. It was great. And then finally I worked out and got a copy of Redbox D&D and went from there. And, and so what time was this? What, what? It would have been 1989 or 90. My mother-in-law's a, a proud person from Cork and uh, we used to visit Cork quite a bit in the 90s to visit uh, my wife's granny. She used to live in um, Crosshaven near Carrigaline. I know as well. I didn't get the sense in, 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 in around there that there was a particularly strong presence of uh, gaming. Um, you, you couldn't find D&D in Eason's, for example. So, oh, don't, don't, don't talk about the D&D and Eason's. Um, <laughs> because when I finally got into gaming, Eason's had briefly a corner of D&D and Merp stuff. And when I found out what I wanted to do, I w- went in, bought some of it, saved it a pocket money, was going to go in the next day and buy pretty all of it. And that week, they got rid of their section. Ah. I'm still a bit sure about that, far more than 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> So, so how did you get hold of uh, how did you get hold of games? There was um, a, a fascinating interest to any Corkonians, but obscure to anyone else. There was a bookshop called Collins Bookshop, and upstairs, next to the like you know ancient alien von Daniken stuff and the summon your sacred healing angel books, there was a shelf of role playing books, and it was a fairly sort of eclectic collection. Like I remember get my first the first D and D book I ever bought, other than the box set, was the first edition manual of the, of the planes you're the one with the um astral devourer astral dreadnought thing on the cover you're the yeah, fantastic yeah. but absolutely incomprehensible if your only reference is the basic D red box set because you're trying to like, you know, map spells to spells in that book to spells in the mentioned in the manual of the planes and trying to reconcile it all so yeah, it, was, it was like sort of trying to work out how D worked through sort of broken window because <laughs> it's a full grasp of the whole thing and and who were you playing with uh, by then so who was your group Oh, I, I dragged in school friends and um, picked up a copy of the old fighting fantasy role-playing game at one point, running that for them, and then D&D. And then when we sort of like, you know, hit 15, we discovered Vampire, and that was it for a while. And, and uh, when did you discover Call of Cthulhu? Because clearly that's had a, an influence on your what you write now. So There's a local gaming convention, WarpCon, which I was heavily involved in, still am um, I've gone to for every year for many, many years. But the first year I went to that in 1994, the only games I played at that point were D&D and D&D-esque things. So that was the first convention where I discovered Paranoia, but also the first convention where I discovered Cthulhu. So it was a massively formative experience for me, given there are two of the things I was associated with. I recall absolutely fantastic Call of Cthulhu scenario. We were all priests trying to solve the, the mystery of why one of our like, fellow students in the seminary had vanished I, I, I've been searching for a copy of that scenario for years just so I can sort of try and see what was actually going on because, again, I only saw part of it. I really wanted to find out what the actual story was because we got nowhere in it. But I, it was that was sort of like a revelation that like you know, games didn't have to be about 
swords and sorcery in dungeons. Did you play any uh, long-form campaigns? After the convention, I got grabbed a copy of Call of Cthulhu, and we played that for a few years then. We never played any of the like the, the great campaigns of Cthulhu. We, we, I've, I've played through Horror Dorit Express, but that was much, much, much later. We were just like running basically everything from the various Cthulhu anthologies, like the great old ones, and... I think fearful experiments and so forth. Basically, whatever, book, whatever books we could get our hands on, we we ran through. You mentioned uh, WarpCon. So, um, is there a a lively um, convention culture in Ireland? There is. There are a couple of moderately big conventions: GaleCon in Dublin and WarpCon in Cork, being the two largest ones. There are lots then of smaller conventions, and I'm probably going to <laughs> throw the wrath of someone here by by calling their con a smaller con, given Leprechauns quite large and QCon in Belfast is bigger than all of them but that's because it's sort of embraced anime early 2000s back in sort of my college days like there was you could go to a convention like at least once a month and you could easily do like two or three a month there were lots of small college cons and local cons there was a sort of travelling convention circuit of people who would go to most of them and so how did you make the transition from a, a player to uh, an author a designer um again through through conventions really the irish con system evolved over time but back when i was involved was weirdly based on the rpga system so basically instead of a, a gm turning up to a con and running their game a gm would go to the con and be given and sign up to say i'll run call of cthulhu and then all the gms running cthulhu would be running the same scenario at the same time so you have a sort of tournament style uh, um, set up there and that meant that the like whatever scenarios we wanted at the con for a particular game had to be written up in considerable detail and to like a quasi-professional standard as you, you needed pre-gens you needed, needed detailed notes that a GM could just pick up and run with like two minutes notice so I wrote a lot of those games mainly uh, actually like Cthulhu and so forth and because they were so detailed and like ready to pick up and run there was a site called irishgaming.com which I think is gone now which archived them all, and when I got the internet and was on various mailing lists, I would point at my scenarios going, here, look at this, if you want a blue plant scenario, go here, I've got like five, five of them for download. That picked up um, some attention from um, Fantasy Flight, who were doing blue plant at that point, and they offered me a little bit of freelancing, and I sort of went from there, getting freelancing gigs along the way, and then finally the computer job I was working in went away, and I thought, well, Give this writing thing a try until I run out of money, and I haven't run out of money yet. How long may you continue? What came to my attention was um, the stuff you did for uh, Mongoose, which is reviving some of those um, classic games from the uh, 80s. Well, um, Mongoose started out as a like D20 supplement company back in the D20 boom. At the time, they were hiring loads of writers, so I signed up with them and got a full-time job with them, which came in very handy, because um, the money at that point was being torn out. After a while... Once the sort of initial D20 frenzy started fading away, they started basically revive, as it reviving old games, and I ended up redoing uh, Traveller for them, and also uh, doing an adaptation of Hawkmoon for their revival of RuneQuest. In both cases, it was very much trying to sort of like you know recall as much as I could of the sort of 80s nostalgia and try to basically sort of bring the games back to sort of their their roots while still modernising them a little bit. Well, I've, I've played your version of uh, Traveller, and I have to say that uh, it's a version that, uh, and I'm going to offend some people now, that makes it playable. Um, you, you do a really good job of capturing the essence of 
traveller and uh, its world, but giving mechanics that are accessible and playable. Thank you very much. That was <laughs> the, the, the brief and the idea. Reviving old games is a kind of a tricky prospect. You've got to sort of be a sort of respectful custodian of the established um, fan base and people who've been playing it for years, because I mean they're the ones who have a great sense of ownership of the game. But you also need to appeal to new gamers. You need to basically identify the bits of the classic game that are sort of easy ins and focus on those without disturbing the like massively established canon effects. And then there there are a couple of like sort of sacred cows, sacred cows, sacred cows that have to be killed. And, and and so when when you were faced with the uh, with Traveller, what was the uh, sacred cow that you felt needed to go? Um, Traveller was a kind of a weird case in that they were doing Traveller Five at the same time, so I had to like you know, keep that in mind at the same time, even though that didn't actually exist yet, and it had very little idea of what it was going to be. I think the main thing for Traveller was just sort of making the skill system feel a bit more like other games, because the original Tra- like Classic Traveller had a fairly idiosyncratic skill system where each skill worked slightly differently there was no sort of like single unified mechanic and the number of skills a character had what would vary wildly like you know you could have a character who had like you know one level in back suit and that was their entire skill skill base where someone else had like a dozen skills in various things so basically was trying to achieve some level of like party balance and baseline competence Starship combat and becomes more playable. I'm not very good at logarithms, but better at uh, story. And I think um, the Starship combat system that you put in uh, your version of Traveller makes it more fun. Unless uh, less with project protractors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I will admit that's less like you know strictly realistic, but it is a lot more approachable for those who aren't. Into into the log tables and their Newtonian physics. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I'm afraid I still couldn't make um, the uh, bureaucracy planet in the Traveller Adventure any fun. Yeah, <laughs> Tra- Traveller Adventures are a whole other ball game. I mean, I, I, I modernised uh, some of those, and there are some absolutely great ones out there. And there are some others that. What's the diplomatic way to put this? Adventure, adventure writing is an art. It, it, it's like, like you know, it's like cinematography or screenwriting or something. It has evolved over time, and we have seen like things that work and things that don't work. Um, so some of them, some of the early ones, do meander around doing things that don't work very well. Well, we may return to the idea of uh, adventure writing as an art, but I didn't want to let um, Hawkmoon uh, pass. So, what, what was uh, what are the challenges with that project? How it came about is that mongoose got the license and said gar write this and i went okay and read off and hastily read all the hawkman books i could find ah right so <laughs> you see uh, we have a bit of a, an ongoing uh, debate uh, on the podcast between um, the moorcocks and the uh, tolkien's so would you say you're firmly in the tolkien uh, pack yeah i mean i i like some moorcock stuff um i quite enjoyed working on hawkmoon i think he is a sort of fascinating figure in the history of fantasy but yeah, I'm not. I'm not I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm just being diplomatic there. Yeah, there's no need to be uh, diplomatic. <laughs> there's always need to be diplomatic. <laughs> so, 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 so it's a case of um, just um, cramming all those uh, books and reading the Hawkmoon books. And how how do you make um, something like a literary world um, gameable? Um, it, it was very much a case of cramming all the Hawkmoon books and 
reading whatever of the old Kielsen supplements I could find and seeing as I don't actually speak French, trying to work out what the French Hawkmoon line was like um, through through like you know, Google Translate and so forth. And owing to a schedule screw-up, I did an awful lot of that while sitting on a boat on the Great Barrier Reef between scuba diving lessons, <laughs> which was one of the more surreal work moments the, I, I, I thought I had free time on my schedule and Mongoose disagreed so I ended up having to combine the two but yeah I, I spent more time reading into the licensing issues regarding Hawkmoon than work spent writing Hawkmoon given that he famously wrote some of them in a weekend as far as adaptation goes the key is basically finding out what a group of player characters might do um, who look like what sort of character what sort of characters they might be and zeroing in on the parts of the setting that give them gameable stuff to do. Uh, S. John Ross, who's a fantastic writer, has this list of sort of rules for how a role-playing game setting works. Cliché, combat, fellowship, anarchy, and enigma. Huh. Basically, cliché needs to be accessible. It needs to basically be like you're familiar enough that players can riff on it and absorb it easily and do like tons of background research. Combat there needs to be basically you know, action and things to do. Fellowship, you need a group of like you know ex-player characters wandering around doing things. Anarchy, they need they need to be the, the ones pretty much in charge. There you that you can't. It's hard to do like you know a viable military style or heavily hierarchical, hierarchical game where they, either they're getting orders they have to execute to the letter or one player character is in charge and everyone else has to obey what they what they say and enigma there has to be stuff to investigate and mysteries to solve and basically using i, I would often use those five things as a guide when trying to adapt a literary or like um tv series whatever into a role-playing game and i guess the other element is um uh, ability to not be precious about the setting as well, isn't it? To feel that um, it, you can interact with it without destroying it. And I think that's sometimes a challenge, isn't it? With taking up a, a literary setting or an established setting like uh, Glorantha, for example. Yeah, you, you need to sort of identify what bits people will not tolerate you messing with. Like with like Lord of the Rings or something, you have to sort of like, you know, you, you can't really do a game where you're replacing the Fellowship or where Soren can be defeated by someone else. Or in Star Wars, your your core setting can't be like, you know, you're the guys who killed Darth Vader because the the players, people who come to the setting, loving the setting first and the game second, are attached to those existing elements very strongly. So you need to find other places in the setting where you can have action and anarchy and the players doing stuff that sort of fits in with the established canon without contradicting it. So find the fuzzy areas and the the uh, ill-defined areas and sort of make, making your home there while echoing the interesting elements from the established setting. What strikes me about your um, your writing style and your ability, and as you say, the art of your uh, adventure writing, is you're very good at finding the core elements of what makes something work. I where, do, where does that come from? Is that just a wisdom through years of playing, or how do you get to the very essence of what's important? I think possibly it's because of my background writing convention games. Because in a convention game, if you don't know 
about the players that are coming and you don't know how familiar they are with the particular setting, you learn to sort of foreground the cool things of that setting in these adventures while still knowing that the players might equally be long-term veterans you want to put an interesting twist on it. So if you're running a Cthulhu game, then you want to have like foreground investigating stuff, cool handouts, interesting clues to follow, cults and monsters at the end, and like madness and horror. But you also want to entertain these like the Cthulhu grognards. So you want to basically have interesting twists on all those things. So you sort of, you end up sort of boiling a setting down or a game down to its like its core activities or core loops. And then putting spins on those to make them shiny and new to veteran players. What is it about um, Gumshoe that you find attractive to work with? Gumshoe is fantastically clarifying for an adventure writer. How Gumshoe works is it assumes that the players will always get the clue they need to move on to the next scene. There's never a question that you'll miss a spot check or that like the players will misinterpret a clue and they'll go off in the wrong direction. It'll always basically, it gives you a sort of connective structure that you can rely on. And that means you can do more intricate scenarios because you know that the players will definitely spot clues A, B, C. So you know they think that scenes A, B, C will happen in some order next after the first scene, um, which basically means you need to put in less uh, backup. You need to have like, less error collection involved. You, you know the players are going to be able to move on. So you can uh, sort of focus on the, the on the story and the mystery more than other games. Because it gives you great confidence as a writer. So for people who haven't played Knights Black Agents, how would you pitch that to them? The classic pitch is Jason Bourne versus Vampires. You are a elite uh, former spy uh, and you discover that vampires exist and you go off hunting them. And there is this elaborate system called the Conspiramage, which basically tracks your progress against the uh, vampire's uh, evil conspiracy and you shoot your way up it, beating up bad guys. Of course, one of the um, uh, the adventures that uh, you've written from, uh, with uh, Kenneth Hyde um, is the Dracula dossier, which it, the way that that's, uh, that's presented is very different, isn't it, from that kind of scene-by-scene approach. That's very much... Um, uh, I don't like using this word, but a sandbox, isn't it? So this is this is everything, and it'll change depending how you find your way through it. So it I, it, it, it is and it isn't. Um, yeah, I mean, Dracula is a, a complete sort of sandbox slash toolkit approach where we basically haven't done we haven't broken up this adventure. We've got like you know here's a list of NPCs, here's a list of locations, here's a list of items, and but the key is there are then connections between them. And because of how Gumshoe works, where you always find the clue, you can rely on if the players go and find this, like, you know, the uh, Le Dragon Noir, the spellbook, you can go, okay, they have the spellbook. Here's a list of connections and the associated clues. So if they use research to try and find out where, like, where this book came from, it'll point at this librarian. And that librarian is written up as a character. And when they go to talk to that librarian, you read through it and, aha, one of the options is that this librarian is has been hypnotized by a vampire. Here's the clue that will discover that. Here's the connection to that vampire. But you know that each thing in the book will lead to something else. So unless the GM wants to put in a dead end or red herring, everything will keep moving through the web of clues all the way up to Dracula. So the Dracula dossier is um, a few years ago now, isn't it? This is the the big uh, campaign pack um, where essentially um, Dracula 
is being weaponized by uh, various forces as, a, as, a, as an agent uh, at different uh, t- time scales. So how, d- how did that come about? Just describe the uh, process of uh, working with uh, Ken on that project. The original idea was Ken's. Um, there's a book called oh, The Case for the UFO or The Hunter for the UFO or something. Um, it was basically this like 1960s UFO weirdness book. But there's a famous edition of that that was mysteriously annotated by possibly like, you know aliens in the margins and sent into some Air Force Base, the Varro edition it's called, as far as I can recall. And that was the inspiration for having a copy of Dracula with annotations in the margins and that points to clues. And Ken came up with, with that idea and also the sort of basic framework of having four different time periods, 1894, um, World War II, uh, the 1970s, and now... And that was mainly inspired by Romanian earthquakes because we had this whole connection of Dracula and earthquakes. And once we had that framework, it was really a question of writing up basically potential things the characters could investigate, following clues ourselves in Dracula and in Stoker's works and in history. And Ken's, uh, Ken's approach seems to uh, be a minefield of ideas and um, making connections and uh, you know great encyclopedic knowledge how do you boil that down how do you grab onto that and turn it into uh, an adventure with, with, with any idea you have to sort of sit down and go okay how do the players interact with this what dangers might they encounter what clues can they poke out of it how will that sort of play when it hits the table and it's a question to be sort of sitting down, imagining an average group of players faced with that particular clue, um, trying to you know, which sort of gamers would that appeal to? The gamer who like you know absolutely loves history and has an insufficient knowledge of like you know 1970s spy lore, they're fine. They will absolutely love this. I've another hypothetical player who's not really in spy fiction is playing the game because they're playing with their friends. They like combat. How can I stick in a period-appropriate atmospheric combat into the scene? What bad guy can I connect this to to give them a fight scene? But yeah, how, how will this play at the table is, is the question I keep asking. And how does that collaboration process work? Because obviously uh, you've got the transatlantic difference. So how, how does it um, generate? Are you on Skype often? Or? Uh, yeah, for Dracula Dossier, we were pretty much constantly on Skype, passing things back and forth and basically crowing at each other about like your know, obscure discoveries like i remember being very very proud and worked out that the time shift that we'd made to the book basically to line it up with earthquakes uh we'd basically move half the events of dracula like six months later which meant that uh lucy western red dies on friday the 13th which i thought was the best thing ever <laughs> Brilliant. um and uh, but, but, but with any historical thing once you start digging in it gets spooky because you you will like you'll identify all these connections and all these parallels and just historical research will do half the writing for you, um, which is always a fun thing. And I know uh, that I know that you've uh, you've run uh, the Dracula dossier um, the full campaign over a weekend. So how did how did that go? That went really really well. I was very happy with how it went. Um, basically, at Scalecon, we ran it was five sessions, five like you know, three hour sessions of campaign with a sort of a group of players who heroically signed up for it for uh, a two-day con with that one basically what i did was i highlighted a couple of clues that i knew they that i sort of stuff prepared for this so the, the secret sauce of dracula dossier 
is the conspiracy, which is the framework I said of the bad guys conspiracy. You map the sort of web of clues from the dossier book, which is like you know, a smorgasbord of NPCs and characters and locations, onto that pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, you've got Dracula, and you move up the layers of the pyramid, slotting in things from the book. So you, if you slot in like you know this like um, informant at level one, he's worked for the conspiracy on the street level. You beat him up. He points at this chemical firm that gets slotted in level two. So even though the sort of massive web of clues doesn't have much of a structure, when you sort of plug, plug it into the pyramid, you're getting closer and closer to Dracula. So he was able to pace the game so that over the five sessions, they got closer and closer to the center of the conspiracy, closer and closer to Dracula. So it came out as a satisfying experience over those five sessions. And I understand that he actually used a, an iPhone as a as a prop, as a, as a hand out. Yeah, because I, I got one of my old phones and wrote a couple of like notes uh, in the notes app and basically gave the players a backpack with like the copy of dracula maps a couple of other hand- handout pages and the phone and once they finally worked out they could unlock the phone ah there's more stuff in here <laughs> brilliant at, at the time of uh was recording this i'm about to go to um uk games expo and tomorrow afternoon i'm running a game of knights black agents Excellent. And, Good choice. <laughs> and uh, what what tips would you give me? Remember that the players are, or the player characters are supposed to be both extremely competent, but also up against superhuman foes. Give them their chance to shine. Um, they're never going to be sort of screw, screw something up, but they're up against creatures that can't be defeated by basically bullets or gunfire. Always you know, give them the core clues in this, in a scene. Like make, make sure they, they they're never stalled or stuck on what to do next um but at the same time give them a choice of things to do next um uh, try to avoid it, so a, a railroaded scenario um to a degree i mean it's, it's con games so a degree of sort of forward pressure is inevitable give them there are quick there, there are quick reference sheets at the back of the let's Play agents book for the various thriller combat options photocopy those have them available to the players um because if, if they want to do sort of like you know cool martial arts maneuvers there are rules for that and the Let's combat system isn't that complicated but there are lots of basically sort of player triggered options where you've got to spend extra points to do x and make sure they're aware they're aware of those even if you, you don't sort of hire them too much one of the things i found uh, playing the game is um i like it because it's very light on its feet and um you can get the action moving it's sometimes I, I found that there's um, players who buy into that, and there's players who find it uh, difficult because they're used to uh, a ponderous investigation where they've got time to think. You know, people who are, who are thinking quickly and those who are trying to uh, analyse everything. Yeah, we've got, you've got the whole sort of smiley versus boring effect there. Yes. Because <laughs> so, 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 yeah. so, like you do want to play that sort of like you know, intellectual. I will like you know, slowly methodically work through things. Basically, mo- modulate your downtimes. Uh, occasionally, have the bad guys show up and attack, or give it sort of an, an, a sort of espionage horror game. You can like get a great reaction of the players, but just have it, like you know, shadows inside the window, bats beating against the glass, uh, cars slowing down as they pass the character safe house. Going, you know, <laughs> how, how, how long is that car being parked there? Is there someone there? Don't let the more so cerebral players settle for too long. Give them a chance to think, but then sort of chivvy them along to the next action scene. Yeah, because I have had scenes where, you know, they've been uh, faced with a Renfield with a AK-47 
and they're still trying to work out what's going on. The, the, the other thing is tell them that email spec agents, you get information from action, that the point to find a clue is to, the clue will point you towards somewhere dangerous, you'll experience danger there, and you'll get more clues. That if they, if they try to work out what's going on and they're in for the shoot at them, if they take down the Renfield, they will find another clue, they'll interrogate him, or he will have like you know, a phone they can analyze the traffic analysis. The like, you know, the prisoner who's tied up in the back of his car will go, ah, I was, I've been captured and I'm going to sacrifice the vampires. They were going to take me to this warehouse near the airport. That's the next clue the characters, the, uh, the players need. But to tell them basically that getting shot at is a reward for finding clues and that once they finish getting shot at, they will find more clues they can slot into their theory of the, theory of the case. You're, you're right when you say that um, the Dracula dossier is a great uh, resource and using that conspiracy is great because that's, that's how I've constructed the uh, adventure. So I've taken the setting of uh, 1984. So I've said that the former uh, Edom agents are trying to shut down um, the mines in the UK. Um, so it's the backdrop of the 1984 miners' strike and um, there are forces where they're trying to get the mines closed because of the uh, telluric um, powers uh, that are, are, uh, they want to take control of the vampires because Orlac is somewhere in the UK and they're trying to locate him. Um, oh, excellent. Um, so it, it, what I found fascinating is the way that uh, players can find their way through um, the Dracula dossier in different ways. I mean, Dracula is a sort of a, a huge and weird campaign, and it, it does need the pyramid structure to sort of keep it focused. Otherwise, you'd be sort of like you know, circling around Dracula for ages, 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 ever getting closer to the to, to the answers. So, so that that was a few years ago uh, now. So, what's uh, what's the plans for uh, Knights Black Agents uh, going forward? Uh, there are two books uh, currently in the pipeline that are both written. Um, there is the Persephone Extraction, which is an anthology of, or a sort of mini-campaign of five adventures. The, basically, the first one in Paris and the last one in Greece are sort of the, the start and end point, and the other three could be played in any order, so you've got like, some degree of freedom in the campaign. Um, and that's basically about these uh, vampires based on like uh, the shades in Greek myth, so that these like you know ancient withered ghostly things who basically become more solid and stronger when they get when they drink blood, and that's basically running around Europe trying to thwart, thwart their apocalyptic plans. The uh, other thing we've done is it was called Solo up until quite recently, but apparently there's some other movie or something with that <laughs> title. So I think it's it's currently called so- Solo Ops. Although when I when I handed in the manuscript last week, it was like a currently untitled vampire game. That is the adaptation of the Gumshoe One to One system to Spec Agents. Ah, so right. it's for one one player, one GM, and instead of having a group of heroic badass spies hunting vampires, you have one single heroic badass spy hunting the vampires. And will that be similar to Cthulhu Confidential? Will that have um, um, some pre-generated characters for you to use? It'll have one particular character, uh, Leila Khan. Um, basically, we, we because Nesbic Agents is really aimed towards campaigns more than other games. Like in Cthulhu is very easy for sort of one shot scenarios because it's basically all about the monster or the cult, or whatever. Like you know, there is some small 
relatively self-contained instance of the mythos, you go off and thwart that cosmic danger and everything turns to normal. Now, Spec Agents is all about fighting your way up the pyramid, vampires at the top, they've got this epic conspiracy of criminals and spies and monsters beneath them, you've got to basically work your way through. So for solo ops, you have uh, three, three semi-linked adventures where you're basically fighting against different parts of the conspiracy, getting closer and closer to revenge on the vampires. That sounds great. So uh, have you got a publication schedule for that? Is that, is that coming soon? Uh, it's only in playtesting as of today. Uh, so I think October was the current estimate, but that is a very, very, very loose estimate and will depend on how it starts contact with playtesters and revisions and so forth. So hope, hopefully this year. Um, whereas Persephone, I think, is out for Gen Con, but I won't swear to it. Great that the uh, the lines are continuing because I, I do think it's a, it, it's a fantastic game. Um, before you go, I need to make a pitch of my own because I think uh, we need to get this Moorcock versus uh, Tolkien issue resolved. I, I'm going to pitch a game. You, you don't have to give me an answer now, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking a Tolkien versus Moorcock uh, mashup. Elrond versus Elric. <laughs> I'll leave that with you. I'm now just trying to map Melnibone onto Numenor. And like, so you both have this, like, you know, island of, like, you know, a- ancient, powerful, elf associated people. I'm wondering how that would work. That's Degenerate Numenorians. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know, my rates are yeah. uh, good. I'll, five, I'll just have five points on anything uh, on that. That's fine. I'll leave that with you. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for spending the time with us, uh, guys. It's been uh, very illuminating and it's been great. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been fun to sort of go down the nostalgic byways and think about games of yore. <laughs> Thank you. Actual play! Two in a moment when a goat devours the camp payroll in tonight's story from MASH. And here on One Now, the nine o'clock news with John Humphreys. McGregor's message to the miners go back to work. I won't give in. But Scargill says we fight on. I will never negotiate with people who use coercion and violence to achieve their objective. They are the enemies of democracy. They are not interested in the future of democracy. They are trying to kill democracy for their own purposes. Leeds, England, the summer of 1984. The industrial dispute between the National Union of Miners and the National Coal Board has been in deadlock for months. There's been violent confrontation between the Yorkshire miners and the police. The courts have sequestered the union's assets. The Secretary of State for Trade and Industry has sanctioned the use of freelance, deniable agents for counter-subversion operations. 
The MI5's resources are stretched in Northern Ireland and security ops related to the dispute. The sky is steel grey as the agents meet in an abandoned coking plant, sitting on overturned boxes with an overflowing ashtray in the centre of the room. Mr Hans is standing at a blackboard, preparing to brief the agents after they've done their introductions. Harry Reeves, ex-Navy, ex-MI6, now freelance, doing dirty work for the government, like the dogs, you know, bit of that Cockney stuff, speak a few languages, but I can make my uh, Cockney accent disappear and do a, a really good Yorkshire. Surveillance is my thing. All right, I'm Jimmy, doing the traffic cops, but I uh, expanded out a bit. It was a bit of a tough time, but done with the cops now and I'm freelancing. Driving's my speciality. There's not a car I can't start and not a car I can't drive. Yeah, I'm a ex-MI6 involved in surveillance, intelligence, supporting the army in Falklands. Uh, got discharged after that. Yeah, so <clears throat> Adam's uh, from the mean streets of Hackney. He's a boxman, so he's an intrusion expert, uh, breaking into newspaper offices, corporations, etc., uh, dirt. You might recognise him recently on the TV because he was featured, uh, his face at least was featured in a TV documentary about a, a famous break-in uh, at a newspaper tycoon's office. So he's, uh, he's lying low at the moment because his, uh, his face is out there. OK, listen carefully. Your mark is Frank Holton. He pins a photograph onto the blackboard. He's the treasurer for a local branch of the NUM and he set up a meeting with Vladimir Kurtz, the leader of the Kurbas Union of Workers who've been donating their rubles to support their comrades in the UK. Only Kurtz is not as he seems. We believe he's a GIU operative who's been on active measures and seems to want something in exchange for his financial assistance. The USSR have strategic interests in this dispute but this seems to be something personal for Vladimir. The meeting's taking place in the Victoria Suite at the Metropole Hotel in the centre of Leeds. You need to find out what's happening and have the mandate to intercept and disrupt Kurtz's intervention through any means possible. Any reasonable means. But you need to act quickly. The meeting's taking place in 50 minutes. Have we got a car? What kind of what kind of car would you like? Well, part of me would love nice chocolate brown Austin and Allegro, just because that's what we had when I was a kid. <laughs> but then I'd a Jensen Interceptor a... might be. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, surely we want a nice Capri. Oh, Capri! Okay. Oh yeah, uh, tobacco-coloured uh, Capri. Yeah. yeah, a bit of a squeeze, but we can all fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say that you're all mic'd up as well, um, so you can communicate to each other if you want to uh, split up. I was just going to get a check in the back of my car, in the back of the Capri, rummage through my bag, and I think I have some phone taps in there. Okay. <laughs> I wondered if we could uh, get through the door, pop a phone tap in. So we could we could try and book book the, the room next door, the room above? Well, that's, uh, what, that's what's known as uh, preparedness. So as you rummage around in the back of the uh, car, you've got to roll over a three to say whether you've got it or not but you can spend some of your points to increase the chance of you having some phone taps. If I spend some points, I'm, I'm preparedness points, aren't I? With, that would be the ideal skill for having, you know, rummaging and pulling, pulling thing out of thin air. 
so if I spend um, two points, yeah, that we're, we're guaranteed it, aren't we? Unless it's a roll yes. of one. Yeah, you've got it. Come on, Jimmy, get us there ASAP. All right, let's go. It's a busy uh, Saturday afternoon. Jimmy knows back roads, which might be useful later. The Hotel uh, Metropole is a big mock gothic hotel in the centre of town with lots of people congregating. There looks like there's some kind of convention taking place. Looks like some kind of board games convention. <laughs> there's various teenagers in uh, jeans and heavy metal T-shirts gathering around the lobby. Where are you parking, Jimmy? Is there car park around the back like a goods entrance around there perhaps behind it there's a place where deliveries are accepted okay some of us need to get up to the room and someone needs to go to the front desk and get a get a booking um victoria suite is at the very top of the building angus are you are you thinking that you if you were underneath that you'd sort of like drill up and just put a no because if you've got the reception if you've got the if you've got the bug in the phone in the room We'll just right, be underneath right. the room, won't we, with our, our little transistor receiver. So you don't, you, don't have to, you, you don't have to physically... No. Should we phone the room first to make sure we're not there? You could ask at the front desk to phone. We know his name. Just ask if you could uh, page him. Have you got any skills that could help with that? I've got, like, got, flirt, got flirting. Who, yeah. who can tell? Go and flirt with a bird on reception and see if you could get her to tell you. I do, I do indeed flirt with the bird on reception. <laughs> to... Uh, to to see whether I can, uh, to see whether my um, my old mate is in is 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 there or is, whether he's out uh, doing mischief. She explains that she's uh, she's got into trouble for this kind of thing before. Oh, I bet you have, darling. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I can I can tell by your face that you're not one to follow rules either. And um, she says she says that the uh, Victoria suite isn't occupied, but it is planned on. Uh, People arriving very shortly. Well, fantastic. That's great. That's all, right. that's all, all I need to know. And we'll, we'll catch up later, yeah? Let's do that. She gives you her number and when, uh, a time when she's uh, knocking off. All right. Don't milk it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get into the room. Yeah, so I, I, my cherry is, is breaking all locks. So if I do the lock, then, um, then John can plant the bug. Okay. Delightful carpets. So, so, so Ian, should, do you, shall, I, shall I watch the stairs to make sure we don't have any visitors, yeah? Oh, are we in? Yeah. This is 1980, just a credit card. <laughs> yeah, you just, slide, uh, you just slide a card, an access card, down the... Uh, <laughs> Your wobbly Ooh, friend. A, yeah. friend. Yeah. Flexible friend. Yeah. Okay, so you, you're in the room. Right. Oh, crumbs. We're going to need more than one bug. Have I got more than one or just one? You've just got one at the Surely moment. They'll only... Surely they'll go only chatting that on those sofas. You need to be on the table. You need to be somewhere between yeah. the two for a light fitting or the phone or something. That should get it. So they're either going to be sitting on the comfy sofas or around the table. Around the table around here. There's a desk, isn't there? I and there's a desk there. Uh, maybe Ooh. if I put it, put it on this, on this light here. Meanwhile, to roll meanwhile, meanwhile, in the lobby, walking through the crowd of nerds that are gathering in the lobby, you see this guy, and he must be about seven foot tall with a bald head, with <laughs> one white eye, who comes <laughs> striding in. And a cyclops. He's uh, and quite an imposing figure, and he and goes to the reception. As as we're in reception, I'll go, oh, God, uh, John, chop, chop. 
Target's here. Target's here. Whatever. Whatever they. Uh, are, we, are we talking into our? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like another Benson and Hedges. Target's here. He goes to the reception and he picks up the keys and starts making his way to the elevator or the lift. Is there say. only? You could maybe get him to join a sort of a pickup chivalry and sorcery game on the way up. You know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, if he's coming up in the lift, you can go down the stairs with impunity. As I thought, he's, he, he'll be none the wiser. Have the boys got the bug in then? Yeah. So, John, where are you putting the where are you putting the uh, bug? It, just in that lamp there. What we're in the lift with him? Can't get any conversation out of him at all. No. So, are you in with these uh, lot doing this board game thing? I think they're all playing Monopoly. He just smiles. And nods. He's, he, right. you, look, you look at his hands, his hands are like, like shovels, dirt ingrained in his nails. What's he dressed like otherwise? Is he fairly normally dressed? In a blazer, in a, in a, in a business suit. Okay, well, when he gets to my floor, which was going to be uh, uh, five, I think, I'll, I'll, I'll get out. So are you getting out of there, John? What, what do you want to do? Do you want to go straight into that booked room and turn it on and see, see if it works? Yeah, and I'll say something in the room, and you can pick. We it can't. Up. You're. We can't. You need to be out there, and we'll hear him surely moving and shuffling around. He's come up to the uh, seventh floor, and he's in the corridor. Where are you, John? Well, I'm. I planted the plug, and I'm going out now. You're out. So I need to leave the room. Well, should I go down to the lobby as the driver if we need to yeah, make that's a sharp exit? Yeah, you get a car ready. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, Jimmy Driver. Right. I'll go down to the lobby then, Lee. <laughs> so are, we all are, we all, want... are we all wearing sort of leather jackets and polo necks? Sort of beige leather jackets and yes. polo necks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you go down to the uh, down to the lobby, uh, Jimmy, you notice that there is a nervous-looking Frank Holton uh, enter the place, and underneath his arm, he's got this uh, file. Is he alone, presumably? He is alone, yeah. He's clutching this file very closely. It tracks your interest. Uh, I'll radio so... up so the guy's in the room. That... <clears throat> Bagpuss has awoken, or whatever code name you want to use. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's carrying something from the mouse organ. <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel, the message received. <laughs> as you leave the room uh, John and up it on that so you see this guy stride past and he mutters uh, hello in some uh, with a, a very heavy eastern accent so uh, I, I, sorry has he, he hasn't seen us leave the room he's just seen us in the corridor is that right yeah so I'm setting up in floor 5 with the uh, receiver <laughs> trying, to, trying to tune it in so just so I know, has he? Is this weird guy seen all four of us? So he's seen all four of us. Yeah. That won't be a problem, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's only got one eye. <laughs> Down in the lobby, you can see that Holton has got into the uh, lift and he's making his way to the uh, seventh floor. So I assume Jimmy's trailing him now. Are you trailing him, Jimmy? What do you reckon, Holder? Hang tight, just in case we have to make a sharp exit. Yeah, if he's going up in the lift, I'll, I'll warn the guys that he's on his way up. Can I just sort of throw in a suggestion? It may be, it may be mad. So, do, do you think we should stop this guy? Do you think he's a he's a victim in this, and we should bring him onto our side rather than let him go in there? Well. 
our our orders are to just to listen in and find out what's going on rather than try to convert him. That's what we're being paid to do. Does he seem scared more than nervous? He looks very anxious. He looks very. He, he looks scared. He looks anxious. It just, I suppose, Adam's moral whatever compass is uh, twanging. But but uh, but you're right. It, it it is the mission. But this guy looks like he's in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's not our problem. We just need to. Uh... We just need to get the intel and get out. So let's get this. Uh, let's get the old real to real cracked open on the bed, and let's see if we can uh, see if the bug's working. Come on, John, do your magic. Get get the old uh, transmitter tuned in. Okay. <laughs> the cat's whisker. I'm going to say that because you're a, fl- uh, a floor down, that this is going to be a difficulty rating seven. Yeah, but we could set, if we adjust the squelch setting on the uh, using my electronic surveillance. If we adjust the squelch setting on the receiver, we should be able to take out some of the uh, interference of the building, which is going to be less because we're still only going through floorboards rather than the steel frame structure of that wall. I'll knock it down to five. <laughs> <laughs> Three points of surveillance on it, and have a go. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, I've got three points on that. Shall I roll a d6, yeah? Yeah. I've got six. Six. And you hear a knock on the door. And he shuffles over. Press, press play and record on the reel-to-reel. <laughs> <laughs> they, exchange, uh, they exchange pleasantries, but it's quite clear that Holton is nervous about this situation. Did you say the other guy has a... Eastern European accent. Yeah. Being MI6, working uh, with the Eastern Bloc regularly, can I get any twang from his uh, from his accent to be able to pick up a, a, a general region? Is he is he Hungarian, Pol- Polish, just or is it just sort of... Romanian. And it sounds like he is a minor, and he starts talking about brotherhood and solidarity. <laughs> He's banging his head <laughs> in those tunnels at seven foot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder as he leaves if we should uh, jump him in Nicky's uh, boulder. Yeah. We could we just filch it. I've got filch. Have you? Yeah. Well, yeah why don't I, you... I, I've got filch as well, if necessary. As you a mean like, do you mean like mug him so, so not just, yeah. just, just, just take it off him? Yeah. This guy starts talking about... It, it seemed, they seem to be wandering around the room. He, he, he feels anxious. And he starts talking to Holton about dark forces are in control of the mines in Romania and they want control of the mines in the UK. Beware of the wolves, they're coming for you. Does he sound sound sympathetic? Well, he's not threatening, he's sort of warning. Yeah. Um, Harry... You've got some uh, knowledge, haven't you? Uh, yeah. I have some, uh, some knowledge of, of the Eastern, Eastern Europe, yes. Um, and human terrain. Human terrain. Do I know what the wolves are? Have I heard them referred to before sometime in, in, my, in my past? You're not quite sure, but uh, you have heard of uh, wolves in uh, Romania. They're a gypsy, nomadic, gangster group that operate in uh, Romania. That's a, a a slang term for them. Should we attempt to to uh, one of us attempt to get the uh, dossier off uh, or, or the file off um, Frank? How, imp- how important do you think is it that we 
do it without him knowing? Do you not think it matters? Um, do, is there any, do we have any value in interrogating him or doing that sort of beyond beyond mission? Well, it's not actually the it's not actually the file we want. It's what's inside it. So we could just take it, grab the stuff out of it, and give it back to him. There you go. That's what we need to do. It goes on. It goes on to start talking about energy power. It's the energy power, and uh, Halton saying, "What? What you mean like gas, electric?" And he says, "No, no, no. Dark power. They find a dark power." It might be, might be useful to the government to tap into when for when the North Sea oil runs out. Harry, have you got some um, background in the occult as well? No, uh, one. Yeah, so you do have uh, some some knowledge because you've got your your you've got some concerns about this, and you know that the uh, the Ravari uh, Sagna, who are the who are known as the Wolf Gypsies, they're a Roma clan that are native to Transylvania. Just so I know. The rest of us don't don't have any knowledge or understanding or interest in the supernatural. It's all it's all new to them. Is that right? Yeah. But Harry bangs on about it sometimes when he's pissed. Yes. Right? Yeah. And he never walks under ladders. <laughs> Does it sound like in our smoke-filled room, huddled round this little uh, speaker, Holton understands what's going on? Not not at all. Not at all. And then they start talking about money and he says that he's got the money and the money will be delivered tomorrow in exchange for your gift. Holton's giving him money. The no, Holton's receiving money from the vampire. To... Uh, from the, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> two, two million rubles. Okay. Do we need to intercept that? Do we? Well, we need to get back to our handlers and tell them what's going on. Do they want us to intercept the cash? Or do they want us to follow the money? Maybe we need to trail this Transylvanian chap. Oh, that's a good idea. Jimmy, you suddenly become aware of four men in motorbike helmets wearing black leather gilets exposing heavily tattooed arms. They have long cases slung over their shoulders, barging through the entrance. Two of them take the stairs, two take the lift. It looks like Frank and Vlad's meeting is going to be interrupted. Hey, buddy. Want to go for a ride in my flying car? Nah. How about we go fly around with our jetpacks? Nah. The future's just so boring. Is the future boring you too? Well, maybe you should listen into the Save for Half podcast. The podcast about old school gaming, where we take a look at old gaming books with fresh eyes. You can find us at saveforhalf.com or on iTunes or around the corner. Perhaps we're standing behind you right now. Don't look. Just by the rules. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I have the man they call the judge. We've spent some points on streetwise, network and cover and secured this safe house so we can comfortably talk about night black agents. Hello Blythey. Hello Dirk. Okay here we go. So we're going to talk about night black agents but before we get into that generally here we are with Gumshoe. This mm. is um, this is a character sheet that's presenting you with a list of skills that's not expressed as a percentage 
or pluses. Absolutely, I, yeah. Yes. Thank God. How does that feel? <laughs> I think when we first played it, we've played it a few times, haven't we? I think when we first played it, it was a little bit bewildering. We'll talk about spending points later, but spending points wasn't particularly bewildering. But the, the investigative skills thing was. Yeah. They're like rated one to three, aren't they? They were a bit bewildering because you sort of think, what, what do I do with these? Because yeah. you don't you don't roll and you don't necessarily spend. So you just kind of have investigative stroke, academic kind of skills, don't you? Yeah. Which is, yeah, you, you do look at it and think, I'm not sure what I, what I do with these. See, I think this whole experience of uh, starting to work with Gumshoe in Night's Black Agents is it's like stretching muscles, isn't it? Stretching muscles that you didn't realise you had. And you can hear them, yeah, you yeah. can you can hear them pop and strain <laughs> while you're doing it, but in the end it feels quite rewarding. So this idea of having investigative uh, abilities, where you are an expert, you're an expert in the field of archaeology, for example, and you can just do it. So yeah, I think you're right because I think we, we've played a few. Um, of these newfangled games, um, and, uh, <laughs> and but Nice Black Agents, I think, was the first new was it the first newfangled game we'd played? It was, yes. I think. Was. And we played Numenera, but I, I don't think that's the, that newfangled really. Uh, whereas this this was, uh, and you're right, it does stretch you a bit because you you realise how, for want of a better term, how lazy you become as a gamer as a role player because you're just used to things which are either Roll over this, roll under that. Pluses and minuses and percentages, and that's how it. That's how all role-playing games work, and it does present you with something different. I think the moment it clicked with me was when I realised that the investigative skills can be looked at as a hand of cards almost. So, as if at certain points during the game, you can play it. You know, like in a card game, you would play a card, right? This is the point in the game. I'm going to play this card or I'm going to play that card. This, the investigative, investigative skills in Gumshoe feel like a hand of cards yes. that you can play at certain points and say, right, at this point, I'm going to use this or use that. And that's the point at which it fell into place for me a little bit, I think. And, and also, it's that thing, isn't it, where, you know, as a magic user, for example, you may deploy a spell in a particularly tactical uh, yeah. point in the plot to progress things or to send it off in a different direction. The application of the investigative skills has the same effect, doesn't it? It yes. actually drives things forward in an interesting way. So um, part, of the, part of the thing that you're doing as a player is thinking how do I use this in the most effective way? I've got this array of abilities. How do I yeah. pick from this list the best thing to do at this particular point? At first you look at it and, as I say, you have that, that your lazy role player mind thinks, oh, this is, this is hard work. This is, this is new. I have to think about this. But eventually you think, actually, this is, this is great because it solves the problem. It solves the problem of investigation in games. There are these clues to be found, and yet no one's finding them because you're failing the roles. Whereas in Gumshoe, you don't fail the role, you find the clue. I found <laughs> as well that that 
sensibilities infected some of the other games I've been running. So recently, uh, as you know, I've been running Two-Headed Serpent using the Pope Cthulhu variant of the Call of Cthulhu rules. Mm. And I found myself saying things like, who's got the highest spot hidden role? Um, and just allowing those who've got the highest spot hidden to yeah. do it. So without a role, you know, you, you're the one who finds this. Yeah, um, because I want because you want you want us to do it because it progresses the game. Yeah, there's no there's no point saying everyone make a spot hidden roll and then we all fail. Yeah. And where does that leave you? You know, sometimes and this this has happened in games. We've we've done this a number of times. We fail the spot hidden, and then the game master go, "Oh well, I say find it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've all done that. Oh, I say you find it. Why Why is it that, you know, I've spoken to a number of people in the Grog Squad who have got Knights Black Agents but have not run it. So what they've said to me is they find it a little daunting, a little off-putting. And it took me a little bit of time to just get into it, just to um, buy into the, some of the concepts, um, to, to, to grasp it. Because as I say, it was stretching muscles that I didn't realise I had. I think I, I think it's because it's actually very, at its heart it's a very simple game. It's a dead simple. I mean, it's a dead simple mechanic, isn't it? Just rolling a d6 for to do things. It's rolling a d6. One d6. Um, throw one the, d6. Throw the rest of your dice away, uh, Blythe. Throw them away. Throw them away. Don't like that. Don't throw like them that away. Aspect. That's the one aspect. Why couldn't it be a d8 or a d12? Poor old d12 never never gets used. Never gets used. The Thunderbird uh, three of dice never gets used. Um, but yeah, it's a D one D six. But I'll forgive it. I'll forgive it that. So it's quite a simple mechanic. I think the problem lies more with the investigative bit because it's it's simple, but it's kind of a high concept, isn't it? It's almost like your gamer brain is looking for a bit more to be there than there actually is. If that makes sense, you know, you you're looking for more, aren't you? But sometimes there isn't, isn't more there. It's straightforward, really. And and I've, I've I've actually said that actually to people that there's less to it than meets the eye. And exactly. That, yeah, yeah. And and I think that sounds a terrible thing to say, but I don't mean that. I, I I mean that in a way that I want to encourage people to play it because on the face of it, it seems very complex, and you require this very esoteric knowledge about both the supernatural and about. Uh, tradecraft, you know, about how espionage works, how yes. um, history works. And it, I, I think that's some of the baggage that surrounds Ken Height and Robin yes. Laws, isn't yeah. it? You know, some yes. of that yeah. idea that, you know, you have to have this encyclopedic knowledge to uh, even crack it. But it's not like that at all. And it has to be said that it's really good to read. You've got, to remember, mm. you've got to remember that, um, you know, we're coming from the position where, you know, most of the books that we read back in the day were a bit like Ikea flat pack furniture instructions where <laughs> it just told you what to do. Um, but this, you know, this is like, um, I don't know, uh, a Robert Ludlum version of an Ikea it reads like it's, a novel, doesn't it? It does, it does. It's, it's, it's as exciting as a novel to read. It's as exciting as a spy novel to read, even though it's actually a rule book. And it I, does it does fight. I think it does two, I think it does two things. 
I think on the one hand, and it's a really positive thing, is it, it fires you up to want to play espionage and espionage with vampires. I, I, I didn't, even if you didn't think you uh, wanted to play it, I think by the time you read the rule book, you do. Because yes. it does excite you. On the other hand, though, I think you're right. By doing that, it also can be a bit intimidating because it's written by somebody who has such a kind of apparently fluid knowledge of tradecraft and spycraft and all this kind of stuff that you think, oh, do I, do I have to live up to that then as a games master? Yeah. And I think that's the that's the the bit you've got to that's the wall you've got to get through. You've got to break through that wall of feeling this is really exciting, but it's written in a way that perhaps is intimidating. Because I don't think my game will be as good as this rule book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, That's I, what it's like, you know. Yeah. And and I think our message from today is have a crack at it, isn't it? So, yeah. But I think I think the other thing as well, which is along similar lines, is the investigative skills thing. You can have the three the three points on an investigative skill, can't you? One being you're an expert, two being you're a authority and there's three you're a kind of world authority on it or famous for your knowledge on it and you can spend some of those to get extra bits of information can't you yeah and i think if you were a game as a games master that can be a bit intimidating because you would think okay they found i don't know an old book and i've got a clue this old book has a clue so they get that and i know what that is but then if someone starts to spend points to get more information, as a games master, you've got to provide more information. Yeah. Which which might be a bit intimidating. It might be a little bit intimidating for some people because you might think, well, I've got to come up with all new stuff now that I haven't prepared. <laughs> I didn't think they'd do this. Well, that, and, so, and sound convincing about it. I think. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that. But I think it's part of the paradox of this uh, this game, isn't it? That on the one hand, you know, it is about forward momentum, action, mm. moving things on, but it's also about obfuscation, um, <laughs> you know, potentially, yeah, yeah, um, esoteric knowledge and um, difficulty. Um, yeah. So, on the one hand, it's got like a simple one-track approach of keep yeah. moving, keep going, keep yeah. keep moving along, but also have. A lot of knowledge about all the things that are, are driving that and uh, and adding flavour to that. So I think, I think we'll yes. talk about that as we as we go through. So talk about the um, let's have a look at the um, areas of the rules that you think are um, significant and worth highlighting. So what are your three? Well, I've got. Um, I mean, I th- I, I'm not going to pick the investigative rule. Mm-hmm even though I think that lies at the heart of it, doesn't it? We've, yeah. we've talked about that. Just talked about that. Um, I think the three rules are networks, heat, and chases. Chase rules. Right, okay. Networks, heat, and chases. Okay. So let's have a look at... Uh, so what we should say as well as the um, investigative um, uh, rules, you have general abilities in... Uh, Knights Black Agent. So these work a little bit differently, don't they? So um, these are a set of um, skills that you have points that you can vary the target result. So as you said, the target result on a, a D6 is usually three or four. 
So you can, as a as a play character, can spend points to alter that result. So you yeah, can, yeah, you, you yeah. know, you can favor things in your direction by you know knocking yeah. it down to a, a one if you want. Uh, yeah. So you've got you've got a pool of it, yeah. There's, there's a kind of the character sheet's predominantly investigative skills, but then on the right hand side you've got these cluster of more conventional skills like shooting stuff and doing stuff like that. So net, so talk about uh, network and uh, cover and how that works. Well, networks and covers, again, this is a pool of points that you can spend during the game. Um, and what's interesting about it, and I particularly like the network thing. So if you're in a city, for example, and as a player, you can use your network points to drop into the game people or places that provide support for you. So, you know, a contact or something like that. So you might be in you might be in Paris chasing vampires and you can spend some of your network points to say, ah, well, I know a guy who owns a bar in uh, and he's got a he's got a safe house upstairs and uh, he's quite well connected and he's got his ear to the ground and that kind of thing. You can do that. But the interesting thing is as a it's you as a player doing that. So it's not the games master saying, ah, well, you know a guy who's got a bar in Paris. It's you as a player doing it to alter the alter the game and alter the dynamic of the game. It gives the players a bit more it gives a bit more agency and a bit more kind of creative input into the game. Yeah, it do, it does, and I think that's what um, struck us when we first started playing, isn't it? That kind of shift from um, the games master determining everything that was happening to. Um, you as players, um, that kind of balance moves yes. across the table. I am a spy in the middle yes. of this city. Yes. Yeah. I need to build up my resources so that I can yeah. uh, defeat the people who are against me. Yeah, you're not just on your own. You've got the ability to develop a network of people and places to kind of support you, which is what a spy would have. That was a lot of the fun when we were playing yeah, it. Was yeah. you riffing off some of the uh, pl- places <laughs> that you found in yes. the in the city? Well, it, it puts some of the some of the work in the players' hands. So it's not just down to the games master to convert, create a convincing setting. The, the players are doing it as well. Yeah. But I think when we played it, I, I kind of I think, is it a brothel or something? Yeah, yeah. he knows a madam at a brothel in. In uh, where were we in Prague or somewhere yeah, like that, yeah. and of course then you start to kind of develop that idea. So there's like you said, there's a kind of riffing and to and fro between the players and the games master about that, and that takes a bit of pressure off the games master because you, you, your players are creating the setting as well. Yeah, I still find it difficult to reconcile that idea that on the one hand it's an improvisational game that gives a lot of power to the players to shape the game they want. But on the other hand, it is also very structured. It mm. takes you down because of the investigative approach of yeah, you find this, and 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 we'll talk a bit more about that. But that is the paradox of this game. That on the one hand, the the players have it in their ability to create agency, but on the other hand, as a director, as a games master, you also have the ability to shape things. You know the mm. way that it's going. You know what ultimately yeah. they're reaching. Okay, so mm. what was what was next then? You, uh, heat, I, I heat, heat, the heat rule, heat rule. Heat. Yeah, I like the heat rule. I, 
this as part of my homework for this podcast, I had to read the rules again, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't think I quite appreciated this rule when we played it because I was a player, not not a game director, mm-hmm. games master director. Uh, but when I read the rules, I, I think this is a really clever mechanic because one of the problems in role-playing games when they're set in a city or set in the real world or even even in a fantasy world in a city, players do things that they shouldn't do. So they kill people, they blow things up. And one of the problems you get as a games master, and I've had this problem, is how do you not punish players for it, but give players a sense that you can't go around killing people and not draw the attention of the authorities. Yeah. And that's that's true whether you're in Chicago, in playing Call of Cthulhu in Chicago, or you're RuneQuest in Tavis. You know, if you go around causing trouble, you're going to get the uh, authorities looking at you. And the heat rule is that the more things you do like that, the more your heat score goes up. And that makes it difficult for you to keep a low profile. Things like crossing borders is difficult because essentially people are on to you. Uh, and there's a great list of, of points that you get for doing various things. So, you know, kill a civilian, heat point, you get heat points for that. Um, you know, if you blow something up, you get heat points. So you get these this accumulation of points. And it's clever because it takes that problem from the games master of how do you give players a sense of you're getting in trouble and it makes it a mechanic so it makes it part of the game if you see what I mean so it's not it's not necessarily down to the games master's judgment it's something that the players know they're accumulating and you as a games master know they're accumulating when they do things that are problematic Having a gunfight in a hotel, you can't just walk away from it without any consequence. And, and the other thing it does is that encourages you as a player to think creatively about you're going to invoke some of your general abilities to offset the heat. So, exactly. you know, yeah. I'm going to invest a, a few points in forgery for my um, for my passports, you know, because I know that if I get to this border crossing, that there's a, a level of heat on me that what I've yes. done in the previous country, they're going to be looking for me. They're going to have, a, um, you know, the, the border guards are going to have photographs up there of uh, your character <laughs> yes. to look out for you. So grainy, grainy shots from a CCTV camera of you shooting someone. <laughs> yeah. So it, do, it does create that adrenaline, doesn't it, of uh, crossing a border, but that sense of jeopardy, but also that thing that actually... I I feel fairly competent as a super spy that I'm going to get through this. Yes. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, that that is the remarkable balance of the game, I think, that hmm. on the one hand, yeah, you know, I'm good at this, but on the other hand, you know, as there I... Are risks. There are risks. As, yeah. I, as I take more action, as I intervene more and have more of an impact on the world around me, Therefore, it's going to increasingly get more difficult. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good rule because it, it, it makes it a mechanic. It makes it part of the rules. Not just It's not just a game's master's judgment. Okay, and uh, next up, what you've got there? The chase mechanic. Yeah. Um, next occasion is a great 
chase mechanic. Um, it's a bit, I, I don't know, is it, would it be fair to say it's the most complicated bit of the game? Maybe. It, it feels initially. It feels like it, doesn't it? It, it does. It feels like a, a lot of crunch um, to, mm. to, to do it, to deliver it. Um, but I think the more you get adapted to it, the more that you practice it, it's one of those things where you find that it really works. And we should say straight up that I've played this game um, more times than you have. So, you know, I've been <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in the new promiscuous world where I can play, <laughs> I have an open relationship and play with more people. We do now, yeah, we play with other people now, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We're I, okay about it as long as we're both playing with other people at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I can, open, I can open marriage where yeah. if, if one of us was out every night, it's pissed the other one off. But as long as we're both out every night, it's okay. It's all right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as long as we don't talk about how much fun we've had with the other people. Well, as long as, you don't, as long as you don't fall in love with them. I think that's the thing. That's always the thing with this, isn't it? As long as, long as you don't fall in love with some yeah. other game master. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I found playing this more and more and getting more practice at it is that it's really good because the handling of chases in RPGs is really difficult. Yes. But I yeah. think it, it deals with this really well. So the idea is, is that if you use if you're running on if if you're running and using your athletics general ability, um you can spend on that. Or if you're driving and you spend on that. And the idea is, is that there's almost a secret ballot between the director and the player. So yes. you start off with a track that you put on the table so you can see the relative distance between um, the leader and the person who's in pursuit. And you can close that gap depending on a contest. And the yeah. contest is resolved by rolling on a d6, but um, on the level of spend, <laughs> of <course>. <laughs> level <laughs> of, of spend that you put forward, yeah, uh, level of spend that you put forward. So yeah. um, you write on a bit of paper, right? Uh, your opponent's going to put two points on this, or you know, as a player, you might put one point, and you're making that judgment whether you spend your resources to close the gap early on. Or, you know, hmm. add, keep some fuel in your tank and spend yeah. it later. So and I, I think that's the, that's the crucial element of it, isn't it? That yeah. the, secret, the secret spend, the fact that you spend your points in secret and then reveal to each other what you've spent, which cranks the tension up. Because all, all, the chase, all chase mechanics that I've ever come across in an RPG um, tend to rely on dice rolls, Dice rolls and pluses and minuses and percentages. So one of the problems with that is sometimes you can, you'll can you know that you're going to get away because you know you've got such a benefit or such a, such a, a bonus over the, of the opponent that's chasing you or the person you're chasing that you know it's going to work out the way you want to work it out unless you're very, very unlucky. But the thing with Nightspock Agents is because the spend is secret, you don't know whether somebody is going to, you know, the person you're chasing or being chased by is going to spend lots of points and catch you, or whether you're going to spend lots of points and then not have anything left at the end. So that secret element of it 
cranks up the tension and makes it feel like it is a chase. Yes. Which which in most games it it doesn't it doesn't feel like that, does it? No. At all. No. You know? And what's the added dimension? Because I suppose that mechanic is stolen from um James Bond RPG, which we've uh, talked about before. Mm. But what I think adds to this is that it get, it encourages you as a director to have a list of um, cliches or recognisable <laughs> um, resources for you to draw upon to describe that chase. Mm. So, you know, if you're in Odessa... You know, you're going, you're driving your Land Rover down the steps of Odessa. You know, you're driving through um, streets where there's watermelons in crates. Um, <laughs> that that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. passing with a plate glass window. Plate glass, plate glass window. Street full of washing hung out. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, once you've thought, it's hard to think of anymore, though, isn't it, then? I think that every every chase you ever do in Nights Black Agents will have those things in. <laughs> Plate glass windows, steps, watermelons, washing. Is there, any, is there anything else? There's not. I don't think there is. People can write in. Well, I, I, I uh, did a chase through the streets of Leeds, um, and I, I always came up from uh, running through shoe shops, so eventually ended up parkouring <laughs> through <laughs> Dulcis or Freeman Hardy Willis. 80 shoe shop giants. <laughs> yeah. Washing melons, shoe shops, <laughs> plate glass windows, steps. No, that's it. That's, that's it. That's There's it. nothing else. There's nothing else. Yeah, like you say, it's, narr- it's narrative. The investigative side is narrative, but it, it is underpinned by a, a system. So it, it feels like a game as well. It has a gamey element to it. Yeah. There is there is dice rolling, even though it is only a 1D6. I'm not I'm not bothered by that at all. I'll let it go. This is very much a Games Master's game. In the sense that this is a game that gives you, as a Games Master, a lot of stuff to go at. It gives you a toolkit to play with. It gives you lots of information, tips and techniques on how to make a really good thriller experience for your uh, players. What doesn't work so well? It's it's hard, isn't it? I, I do find it quite hard actually to think of something that really doesn't work. Because I do I do think it's a very very good game. It's a really good game. I suppose you you could go back to the investigative thing, couldn't you? As we said earlier, just to reiterate that that if people spend to kind of get more information as a games master, you have to be either very good at bullshitting or very well briefed <laughs> to make it sound convincing. You know. You know, they're looking at they're looking at say looking at the Ming vase, and you give them the clue, and then they go, "Well, no, I'm going to use my uh, my skill, my investigative skills here to find out some more about the Ming vase." And you think, "Oh God, I don't know. I <laughs> just make some rubbish up." That that can be, I suppose, a little bit unsettling. I think it's a bit counterintuitive as well, isn't it? Because if you as a player, what what you should do as a as a director is give everything, isn't it? So if you're faced with a Ming vase. You should yeah. give the history of it, um, when it was done, the circumstances in which it was um, created, and some of the um, things that are depicted on the Ming vase in a lot of detail. If you choose to spend, you should actually have it narrowed down to say, actually, what's relevant about this Ming vase is the fact yeah. that it depicts 
um, a vampire in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little, little vampire there in the corner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Antiques Roadshow. But, I suppose, go on, go on, but, 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 that, but it works the other way around, doesn't it? So, you know, you yeah. might get the, the story about the little vampire in the corner. Or I'll spend some more points in it. Or, well, I'll give you a load of guff about, um, you know, the dates yes. of his manufacturer yeah. and how, how the fact that, yeah. you know, in that uh, particular uh, year, the uh, factory was closed down for a year because all of the um, all of the uh, people working in the factory died or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that that's a slight problem. But then again, it's a, I think it's probably price worth paying to, to not have everyone failing a role and then have to say, oh, you make it anyway. Um, I suppose the, the other the other thing that's not really a problem but takes a bit of getting used to is spending points on yeah. things. So the, un, under, not the investigative stuff, but under your general abilities, uh, spending points to kind of boost a role. There's a temptation, I think, to spend away, spend a few points or one point or two in fact, he even mentions this, I think, in the rules. Spend sort of two points to try and make a roll and fail anywhere. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like you it's almost like you, your old your old fashioned gamer brain thinks, Oh right, I've got points to boost my rolls. Oh well I better start using these, hadn't I? And of course they don't necessarily help because you can still fail the roll. It's almost like what you've got to learn is if you're gonna spend points, make them count. Yeah. And spend I'd spend enough points to make that role to say this is a role I need to make. I am going to spend points now enough points to make that role. I'm not going to spend one or two points to give me a slightly better chance of doing it because I can fail anyway. And then it was a waste of time. And I think that's something you need to get your head round and can initially be a bit frustrating when you've not got used to that idea of spending points. I think, I think that's a bit of an adjustment you've got to make. I think as well in the rules, there's not a lot of specificity about when you will replenish points. So depending on some abilities or cherries that you might have, you might have the chance to refresh some of the points during play by the clever use of uh, language or being able to um, describe things in a clever way. I think that's a lot of pressure on the player, isn't it? So a lot of pressure on the player to have the um, linguistics of spy movies at mm. hand at the drop yeah. of a hat. Um, yeah. And people find, find that a bit difficult. But I've also found it a bit old school, swingy, in that, you know, I've run, I've run the same adventure three times. And that, adve- that same adventure has been either extremely dangerous or extremely <laughs> easy depending on a few um, changes and yeah. I don't think it's necessarily down to the application by the players or cleverness of the players I found that you know uh, in certain situations you might get killed by a hail of gunfire um, just by being unlucky that is the interesting thing about spend system isn't it that it, it does present you with that problem of when do you spend? How effective is it to spend? And and in, in reality, 
and I always this is true of Numenera as well. A lot of the time, you're better just trying to make the roll, and then yeah. use the points and use the points when a you really have to, or b your life's on the line. There's an interesting paragraph, isn't there, in Nice Black Agents, I think, about spend points. So it explains the spend system really well because I know when we played Nice Black Agents and also when we played Numenera, we'd never played spend systems. And at first they feel a bit odd. I've got an ability. So as I as I spend points, those points diminish as if what well, I get worse at it as the game progresses. It seems a bit or an odd idea. It's not spending is not really about upping your chances in a small way it's about using them to have that moment in the spotlight it's to having that moment where you think this this now really counts so i'm going to spend the points to make that happen because that's what my character would do you see what i mean that, that yeah. that's the that's what spend systems are all about they're a way of driving the narrative aren't they yeah. And position and a way of positioning your character in the narrative and being successful in what's in terms of what's going on. They're not. They're not like. They, it's a bit like RuneQuest, isn't it? Where you got power, and you can cast a spell, and you spend a couple of power points and get blade sharp and make your weapon a bit better. Spend systems aren't like that. That's not what they're about. They're not about spending a few points just to make things slightly better. They're about spending points at a crucial moment where it really counts. I think, that, and certainly Night's Black Agents is about that, I think. But it's just getting your head around that as a gamer because you're right, you're used to percentages and pluses and minuses and that kind of thing. It doesn't work like that. So before we go and uh, leave Night's Black Agents... This, of course, is the end of the spy sequence of podcasts that began with Top Secret um, over 12 months ago. Now. Um, I'll explain on the blog how that complicated system will work and um, how we <laughs> will choose a game to replicate certain scenes from the movies. Um, but I've not worked that out yet. It's uh, quite it's late. Too, too complicated. It's too complicated. What have I done? What, what have you done? You've done it again, haven't you? Come up with some convoluted thing. <laughs> you know, you know the only way of getting out of it, don't you? Yeah. Fake <laughs> me, me under. Fake me under. It's on the cards, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend some points <laughs> on cover. I'm going to set myself up a life in Central America. I'm going to drown in a canoe somewhere on Angle's Ark in Rivington. Or drown in the water, not in a... Can't drown in a canoe. <laughs> you have to fall out of the canoe and drown. Not drowning. That that wouldn't be a convincing... It's just a bit of a tip. It wouldn't be a convincing death. He drowned in a canoe. What, in a canoe? No, he fell out of the canoe. He was yeah. eaten by crocodiles or alligators or I, whatever they are in I South th- America. I think I could drown in a canoe, even on dry, dry land. You know, I'll be... <laughs> Fall into a bowl of cornflakes. You know, that's it, you can drown in a bowl of cornflakes. Well, you can drown in a bowl of cornflakes. Well, you can, but you've got to, I don't know, you've got to be trying, haven't you, there? <laughs> well, <laughs> drowned in a canoe full of cornflakes. Either we'll, that's, more, that's more convincing. 
either we'll resolve this issue. With or the... I will. I will. After after recording this, I will get onto eBay. I will order you a canoe and some cornflakes, several boxes, just in case. I keep them at my house, and if if you can't replicate these spy scenes that we've picked, I can't even remember. I remember what I've picked. I'll come round with the canoe and the cornflakes. Okay. That'll be, that'll be the end of that. It's sorted. Just be the siren. See you, Blythe. <laughs> See you, Dirk. There isn't another bit. Yeah, I'll, I'll put something on the blog, thegrognardfiles.com, about that whole film clip replication thing. If I don't die first. Thanks to Gareth Ryder Hanrahan for taking a break in his busy writing schedule to speak to us. If you want to see the list of his projects that he's been involved with, then head to RPG Geek and be prepared to be astonished. He's a really great guest, so thank you very much, Gar. Thanks too to Angus, Matt, Ian and Nick for being very responsive and fun players for the virtual grog meet and letting me record them for the episode. If you want a really good spy thriller RPG, then I'd recommend that you take time to play Night's Black Agents. It's changed my outlook on gaming tremendously. And due to shortage of time, we never actually got round to saying what I like about the game, such as the cherries on top of your skills that can give you additional benefits to make your spies real super spies, or the finer details of the conspiracy which allows the games master to construct an adventure with connected NPCs, clues, locations to drive the plot ever upward to the final confrontation with the big boss who's at the centre of things. Or the fact that you can frame your adventures in different spy modes, such as dust, which is where things actually hurt, or burn, which is more like the Bourne adventures, or Mirror, which is about suspicion and trust, comes into play, like Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy. It's a very versatile game, and the emphasis really is on just really having a good time. I don't normally say something like this, but even if you buy it just to read, because remember, play's the thing, but this is a book that is really fun to read. So... Some parish notices. This year's grogzine is going to be different from the previous ones. Instead of invoking the spirit of White Dwarf and Imagine, we aim to strike a more irreverent tone, looking at our old favourite Dragon Lords for inspiration. If you want a hard copy, then it's going to be distributed in December. You'll need to be signed up as a Patreon by the end of October 2018. The Patreon scheme really helps to drive the quality of the content and encourages us to continue when we're at a low ebb. The thought of loyal listeners who have thrown us a tip in the beret every month gives us a real kick up the arse when we can't be bothered. Thanks, it really matters. It's helped us to buy a new computer to make editing easier as well as supporting other projects associated with the Grog Squad. So, thanks to Wayne Peters and Jeff Bernstein for tipping a 
dollar a month. Thanks. For those that pledge five dollars a month, I offer them a virtual gift from the game under discussion. There's a distinct lack of tables in Knights Black Agents, so I'm going to give them some flavoursome backgrounds. Neil Hunt is going to be writing a piece for the Grogzine, and he used to be a bagman. Brendan, he's a mule. He ought, he ought to know better. Ed Keenan is a non-cobbler, so I'll be checking those tips carefully. Lloyd Burt is a cuckoo. Kachoo! Let's keep those mowing blades sharp. Stephen Wilcott, he's a bag and a burner. Mark Boardman, he's a cleaner. Available most weekdays. Finally, Steve Ray. He was Jimmy the Wheel Devil in the UK Games Expo game. Thanks to you all. You're a great crew. Now, are you ready for one last job? This podcast has been going for three years. In the first episode, we talked about RuneQuest. In 2018, a new edition has been released, so it seems like a good time to revisit the RuneQuest of the past. We'll look at the Avalon Hill years, the Renaissance, Sun County, our thoughts on the new rules, and much, much more. Until then... Adios, amigos.